best to stay at home to keep yourself and others safe, your financial situation, the comfort of your own home, and the resources it can provide suddenly become a lot more significant. There's a crucial difference in how people are surviving the pandemic based on their housing situation. The privilege of having access to a big mansion and the possibility of staying home and doing home office will very likely give you better chances at being unaffected by the virus compared to a person living in public housing and lacking the space to be physically distancing and protecting themselves. It's nothing new that social distancing is a matter of privilege. Public spaces and the way our society works are built on density, trying to fit in as many people as possible to interact with each other and exchange services, often in a very tight environment. If a person can actively choose to not interact with the system and still be off okay financially, while others do not have a choice and put themselves at risk by having to expose themselves to the virus, it is a very big indicator that something is wrong. The recent events force us to evaluate architecture and the way it has served us until now. What spaces we use, as well as how and when we use them, is controlled by the fear of contamination. While most of Europe has gone back to using public spaces the way people would have before the pandemic, the uncertainty of how the virus is going to affect us long term still lies in the air. It is time to rethink and reevaluate everything we have known until now. It is time to come up with new concepts and ideas. What do you do with the existing buildings and corporate offices that are not safe to be in right now, that are not made for a situation like this? What are developers going to do with already existing projects? And what type of architecture needs to be designed in order for it to benefit everyone in a post-pandemic world? Until further notice, here's your podcast. In today's interview, Ted Bapp, Senior Associate at the architecture and design firm SOIL, will be talking about the changes in New York during a lockdown, the use of public spaces, and how COVID-19 is reshaping architecture. You're sitting in your parents' living room right now, but you mostly work and live in New York, which has been hit very hard by COVID-19. I'd like to begin by asking you about your experience with the lockdown in the city. I have lived in New York for many years now. I moved to the city five days before 9-11. But this was definitely the biggest and strangest transformation of the city I've experienced. It's not necessarily a bad one, though, and it has recolored and reframed many of my own relationships to the city and offers a kind of opportunity to reinvent many of them as well. Being in the city on 9-11 was surreal because at that moment of my life, I actually didn't know New York yet. So even though it was this transformational moment of the city, I didn't have a personal relationship to it before that crisis. This one, on the other hand, is the changing of the city that I know extremely well and intimately. 
while I'm living in it. And it's happening in real time. But one of the most surreal aspects to the lockdown or to the pandemic is that it is concurrent in every part of the world. So even though it feels like something that is transforming my New York or my experience of New York, that's obviously something that is happening simultaneously to everyone's relationship to their own environments and to their own cities, even though those relationships in those cities are incredibly different from each other. You mentioned the change that happened on and after 9-11, but that feels like it was very physical. What we all face now is an invisible enemy, which can't be physically grasped in any way. I think both of these were physical and invisible at the same time. I mean, the physical damage to the city from 9-11 was catastrophic, but it was also visible and it was knowable. There was a, the collapse of two buildings. There was a smell of smoke and of trash that permeated the city for many weeks. But much bigger than that was, on one hand, the narrative in the media and in public discourse around fear, around security, around terrorism, which was totally abstract and had nothing to do with the city, frankly. And yet there was the feeling in the city of an incredible camaraderie and of belonging to a place and of feeling like that everyone, despite their diversity of backgrounds uh, in the city, were going through this together and that the city was going to find its own ways to reconfigure itself. So I think in the case of the pandemic, it's possible that the physical transformation of the city is much larger than that other moment. We have a dramatic drop in the amount of cars on the street. Many streets within the city have been newly pedestrianized uh, because of that. The daily cycles of the daily commute is totally gone. There is no coming and going that happens on a daily basis. The places within the city that you define your daily life from the place that you stop to get coffee or eat lunch to the time you spend at a workplace um, and then the travel back home. All of these things have been instantaneously taken away. So in their place is a interest or an enthusiasm of being in the city, but there's actually nowhere to go exactly, right? So. It has not resulted in my experience in a disengagement with the city, but rather a kind of new interest in the small-scale environments around where we live. One of the other large changes that has happened is people not wanting to ride public transportation. So it means that the primary way that we are getting around is 
on foot and by bicycle. And while those have always been actually primary ways of moving around the city, the subway allows you to do that in many different neighborhoods at once. And now there's a kind of hyper-localization to the lives that we're living in relation to our own apartments. I think another interesting aspect of that is that I think no one has really ever lived in their apartments before in New York City. When you move to the city, you're not coming here to live in only one room. You're coming here to see and experience all of the resources and uh, spaces the city has to offer. And it's not just that you do those things for entertainment or for sustenance, but they are the way that you experience or play out your different moods and desires. So what I want for dinner or what I want to do is something that I have almost a limited number of choices in a normal circumstance. Now, all of those things are happening within your apartment, essentially. And many people live in very small apartments in New York, many with roommates who don't necessarily know each other, the very limited storage space with very limited acoustic separation. <laughs> and to, to think about how, you're, how you can move through the day with all of the cha your changing desires for, let's say, a moment of quiet or a desire to hang out or socialize or experience excitement or sadness or catching up with a family member. These are all things which normally you can do anywhere in the city and now all of them have been compressed into just your own living space. The coronavirus has caused a massive decrease in tourism globally, not only because of the virus itself, but also because there's nowhere to go once you arrive to your destination. The situation obviously threatens cultural institutions, cafes, clubs, restaurants, etc. But it also begs the question if their modus operandi can't be somehow rethought. You're totally right that there are these whole structures that sustain not just an interest or the shape of the life of the city, but also what draw people to it that is missing. And I think those are changes that won't necessarily come back in the same way. These small arts organizations, uh, music venues, bars and restaurants will be permanently changed or obliterated as a result of this. That will cause a, a much longer arc of recovery to rebuild the kind of identity of neighborhoods and the shape of an infrastructure for cultural activities within the city. I think if you think about something like Airbnb, what's interesting is that was a kind of overlay over the city that activates existing resources for new purposes, right? It takes existing housing stock and finds a way to let it function as another form of support for tourism and for travel. It's possible that those functions might be more adaptable in the city than 
the more institutionalized ones of hotels and other sort of tourist infrastructure. It's interesting maybe to think about whether something similar could happen with restaurants or other cultural spaces as well. Could those start taking place where we haven't thought of them before? Could those be spaces that are temporary? Could those happen in city-owned or public uh, infrastructure that are being underused? I already alluded to the fact that there are big swaths of the city streets which are now being pedestrianized. The New York Times has written recently about imagining New York even without cars altogether. That's something no one could ever have thought about before this moment. So in that piece by Farhad Manju, he proposes that we take this moment too to really envision transformational changes to the city and something like a new awareness of how much space we devote to cars as opposed to people or to public space is immediately in focus and those are the kind of opportunities that i think we can suddenly see even though they've been here all along You have mentioned how all of our activities and desires are now suddenly compressed often to the space of just one room. I imagine that for an architecture studio such as SOIL, this means rethinking the approach to housing projects. Sherwell has been thinking about the question of housing for a while, and we have been developing a number of principles of housing. Right now we have two very different housing projects under construction. One in Brooklyn, which is a multifamily housing project, so for 18 apartments. And on the other hand, we're also building a housing project in Leon, Mexico, which is in a collaboration with the local government there. Both of these two projects foreground and value some of the same principles even though one is in a quite affluent area in a bustling city and the other is in a quite spread out and low rise area of Leon but they're both trying to think about a different model of living and a different model of the relationship of an apartment or a unit to the city that it's in in both of these projects we have been exploring principles such as single loaded corridors so that every apartment has windows on both sides these are both projects that emphasize transparency and porosity with the use of courtyards and with outdoor space it is integrated into their massing and the way that they sit in the city so this is an idea of thinking of housing not as a dense block where once you leave the city you travel in a dark corridor until you show up in your apartment these are both models of housing that reimagine the journey from the street to your apartment as a kind of gradient between public shared and community spaces and then finally a space that is more private for living each of these projects integrate 
significant outdoor space, both within the apartments and shared spaces within the building. In Leon, where the climate is quite temperate, outdoor spaces are easier to imagine, let's say, as community spaces. But even in Brooklyn, we integrate courtyards and gardens as spaces that you can see and experience even in colder weather. So they're both approaches that try and undo the limitation of housing that is something that is constrained only by a demand for existing economic models and existing construction techniques, existing ways of organizing space, but taking as their primary objective the types of living spaces they're making, the diversity of spaces even within an apartment or a living space, the idea that you don't need a lot of space, but you do need difference in space. So we're quite interested in thinking about typological changes to structures such as housing that don't require particular permanent changes to laws, but that can work within existing structures and economic models. So that's not to say that there aren't changes that should happen to zoning and housing laws as well. One interesting thing that we have observed during the lockdown is the effect of perceptions of safety and of health on values of housing. The 1916 zoning code, which is the first real codification of values such as required light and air in apartments was seen as an absolute virtue for cities. This is something that was supposed to undo and uh, work against the cramped tenement conditions of low-income and immigrant housing within New York, especially in lower Manhattan. Those were laws that were in particular reactions to publications such as Jacob Reese's How the Other Half Lives from 1901, which were exposés about the unhygienic and quote-unquote diseased areas of the city. What's interesting to see the effect a hundred years later of those laws is the way that they've created an economic disparity between housing and the city. The requirements of the New York City zoning code demand a certain distance and a certain location of windows on the street so that they get sufficient quote-unquote light and air. It's hard to argue against needing light and air. Those are, of course, good values. But there's so much housing stock that's existing within the city already that is grandfathered in, that doesn't comply with those rules, and that is small, and that is quite cramped, that those spaces that are before the more restrictive zoning code, those are all of the areas of the city that are quote-unquote affordable. Housing that is built now that complies with the current zoning requirements for light and air demand that you build apartments that are much bigger and that use much less of their site. Those are, of course, good qualities, 
but it means that new housing that's built in the city inevitably can only be luxury housing. There's no real way to build efficient and inventive typologies that use light and air in new ways because of those original anti-tenement laws. So even though that law in reaction to the original health crisis or many health crises from the beginning of the 20th century were designed to set a template for a transforming city that could have within it spacious light and air and that everyone could live more healthily, they have created a stratification between the types of housing that actually characterize the economy of housing in the city. And it is imperative that moving forward, architects challenge how light and air can be brought into housing in new ways and to challenge some of these existing laws to be more flexible and to allow for new ideas to take root and in particular to allow invention within the way we design housing so that moving forward we don't create a similar disparity between housing in the future. For now, we have been talking mainly about the specificities of New York, but I'm also interested in a more global approach. Do you see some sort of a global debate amongst architects on how to deal with the newly discovered freedoms and limitations? For example, the reduction of office space in exchange for home office. I definitely think that there are transformational changes that will not revert to the state before the pandemic that will come out of this moment. I'll speak just one more moment about New York, <laughs> which is that in my own experience, one of the most surprising but also exciting moments about being in the city is this feeling that there are no rules. There's no template for how to live in the city in this way currently. There's no way to think about how we use streets that are now closed off or parks that we spend time in or even how we spend 20 hours in our apartment every day. There's not a way to imagine how we would have addressed that problem six months ago. One particular example in New York is that all of a sudden it is legal to consume alcohol on the street. This is something that has never happened before in the city. It seems minor, but it's an example of how, for me, it feels like that the rules that define the city before this moment have all gone out the window. It may sound perverse, but I really hope that this feeling of instability and uncertainty lasts as long as possible. It's what has enabled the wide-reaching protests that have taken place in New York City, not just because the pandemic has exasperated and amplified and revealed all of the inequities that the city has turned a blind eye on for many years, but also simultaneously the pandemic has created the public space of the street to host these voices and these places for the community and for the public to come together. To think about your question on the global scale, I suspect that feeling of uncertainty, of openness, is quite universal. Its effect on cities is going to be always hyper-local. So how your environment is transformed by the sudden feeling that 
certain rules maybe are not imperative anymore or that the status quo isn't something to be so untouchable and so enshrined in a way that we can't challenge what's known. I think that is what is exciting and that's going to be completely different in every place. One of the strange aspects of the pandemic that we talked about at the beginning is, is this feeling that it's happening simultaneously everywhere. But I think it's experienced everywhere very differently. So I think it is not only not possible, but it's wrong to try and hypothesize how it will transform different places or how its effects will be different. I think the one aspect of that which possible to see from afar is its effect on different kinds of economies. As an architect and as working at a small office where all of our work is digital, it's quite easy for me to work from home. There are many industries where that is not possible. And construction is one of them. So we're seeing in real time what's happening where our own remote working is having to translate now into the very physical problem of construction, supply chains, materiality, very different realities of what we can get imported or shipped from different countries. It's suddenly this moment of being back in that globalized economy. If we think about that as something that has basically amplified the effects of the pandemic, it's also the thing that is going to be maybe transformed most by this moment. I don't know if that means that something like construction will become more localized again, but it will be very different than it is now. But I think the transformation of work is something that is likely to be permanent. You said many people aren't going to their office anymore. That is, of course, true. But I think one of the other effects of that is maybe we'll see that many offices don't need to exist anymore. Certain kinds of work allow us to use the space of an office, not for sitting next to each other and checking our email, but for creating a space for collaboration, meetings, exhibitions, conferences, or other ways of interacting that we maybe didn't realize we were missing so much until they were taken away from us. I quite hope that we don't go back to just sitting in an office and doing work alone anymore. I would also say in my personal experience, I quite like working from home, but I am also desperate for those conversations and those group interactions that used to happen in the office. In particular, in architecture, that means talking around models. It means playing with materials and mock-ups. It means testing things in real time by cutting off a piece of a model or taping on something else. It's a way to talk through physical space that is impossible at this moment. And in fact, in our office, we have started some of that again, even though we're primarily doing our day-to-day -day work from home still. Let's end by talking about public space. More specifically, you mentioned the housing projects of SOIL, but we've been hinting at the process of rethinking the public throughout the interview. Can you share with us the ways that a reframed view of the public might have influenced your work? We just opened an installation just this week, actually, 
at the High Museum of Art in Atlanta in their public courtyard space. Steel structure covered with a shade netting and integrates a number of interactive components such as seating, a seesaw, a water mister for cooling, and a bird feeder that is attracting local avian friends. The idea of the installation is to think about the engagement of museum visitors, not just between art pieces and galleries, but between visitors and each other. By being in the courtyard, it's also open to the public. You don't need a ticket to lay down on one of the nets or to play on the seesaw. These may seem like minor interventions, but as an office, we believe quite strongly in the role of physical infrastructure to help become an instigator of play and of interaction. What's interesting in this particular moment of the pandemic, of course, is that desire for these installations to bring people together is itself a problematic idea. The notion that architecture brings people together is exactly the opposite as what health officials are advising at this moment, right? So what's interesting about an installation that allows a kind of play or interaction with something physical is that it can bring people into proximity and let people discover ways of interacting. Maybe they don't require the traditional modes of, let's say, sitting and having a beer together. <laughs> so I do think that there's something imperative about thinking of public space not just as a public forum for protest, which is an important aspect, but also as places like a park or like a playground or an installation that lets children and adults and visitors and neighborhood friends and out-of-town guests all discover something together. It's a unifying and a collaborative effort to construct a kind of public experience, even if it's not necessarily about public gathering. This episode was produced by the studio of new aesthetic, FAMU. Dramaturgy by Martinetochni. Editing by Max Weit. Sound design by Daniel Wilczek. Our Instagram is taken care of by Zuzana Marketa Matskova, host of the show, Ezra Shemek. Special thanks to Ted Bapp. Follow us on Instagram at UFN minus podcast.